Anyone Can Whistle, with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim and a book by Arthur Lawrence, opened at the Majestic Theater April 4th, 1964. Musical satire on conformity and the insanity of the so-called sane, this show tells a story of an economically depressed town whose corrupt mayoress, in an attempt to draw tourists, decides to create a fake miracle, which draws the attention of an emotionally inhibited nurse, a crowd of inmates from a local asylum, and a doctor with secrets of his own. Receiving a brief run of only nine days, the original cast recording created the day following the closing preserved what has become one of Sondheim's most fascinating scores. Tell us, Cora, how you are. Oh, I just got back from the reservoir. And what's the state of the water supply? Dry, boys, dry. Fine line. Dry, boys, dry. You're so right. I like your all you see. Imperturbable perspicacity. It isn't how you say, it's what you see. We have said. multi-award-winning librettist and playwright Cheryl Coons, whose work includes the musicals River's End, Female Problems at Wit's End, Phantom of the Country Opera, and Sylvia's Real Good Advice, which received the 1991 Jeff Award for Best New Work. Her songs have been performed at both Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center, and she is a teacher and resident playwright at Chicago Dramatists. Multi-award-winning director Victoria Bussert's international credits in music, theater, and opera include the Sondheim musicals Sweeney Todd, Passion, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Gypsy, A Little Night Music, Assassins, Pacific Overtures, The Frogs, Follies, Into the Woods, Sondheim on Sondheim, as well as Anyone Can Whistle. And director-choreographer Christopher Pazdernick, whose extensive credits include productions of Minnie's Boys, Carrie, Applause, The Rink, City of Angels, and High Fidelity, which received the 2017 Jeff Award as Best Production and for which he received the award for direction. At Porchlight Music Theater, he directed the 2013 inaugural production of the Porchlight Revisits Lost Musical Series with Anyone Can Whistle. Welcome everyone to the roundtable. Hi. So, we like to start uh, here with uh, beginnings, when the show first came into your life. For me, uh, anyone can whistle. Seeing an actual production, as opposed to listening to that wonderful cast album that I mentioned, uh, was at Ravinia, the Ravinia Festival, and they did a wonderful series of Stephen Sondheim musicals over the course of years. And that was the first time I ever actually got to see it on stage in all of its 
wonderful and messy <laughs> glory uh, with uh, Patty Lapone and uh, Michael Sybaris and um, Audrey McDonald. Audrey McDonald, of course, and mm -hmm. a cast of Chicago actors. What was your introduction to this incredible piece? I saw Vicky's production, <laughs> Victoria, I should say, Victoria's production. <laughs> I will never forget walking into the theater, and I believe I'm remembering this accurately, there was a preset of a triangle with an eye in it. Yes. And I thought, I was not the Sondheim fan then that I am today, not as informed about his work, and I thought, what am I entering in terms of it being a musical, and was completely captivated with um, the young Larry Yando and Colette Hawley and uh, seeing this vision for this piece that I think harkened back to, um, was it Metropolis? The, Metropolis. the film Metropolis? Yeah. And just, yes. Yeah. So that was my introduction. And um, I, one of my students, I've been teaching a Sondheim class for Porchlight, and one of the students said, to, said in her uh, first class session said, um, I never knew you could make a musical about such things. That was her response to Sondheim's body of work. And I feel the same way about this piece. It got me excited for that reason. Mm -hmm. I first ran into it when, um, when I first uh, directed at Pegasus, Arlene Crudson, the artistic director, was, was aiming to do a Sondheim every year. So it started with Pacific Overture and starting with the ones that nobody had done. So in Chicago. So we started with Pacific Overtures and then we were young enough and crazy enough to do the frogs in an Olympic sized pool. I don't know how we lived through that one. And then we followed it with Anyone Can Whistle and the design you're talking about, all that des those design elements was all Russ Borsky, who won the Jeff citations for that, that, this, that year. That was a, an unforgettable. <laughs> I actually uh, took it upon myself the summer between um, my, uh, before my freshman year of high school to check out every album and libretto of a Sondheim musical from the library. And I sort of self-taught the Sondheim canon uh, in my bedroom that summer, um, which included Anyone Can Whistle. Um, and then my first stage production was also the one at Ravinia. Um, that Michael mentioned. And it was, uh, I had a continued fascination with the show, which is, I think, actually, and I've never told Michael this, a large part of the reason why I advocated for us starting a Lost Musical series at Porchlight, specifically to get my hands on this, this title. And Lost it is, in the sense that, you know, it, it's the one show that, that has had very few, um, fully physicalized, fully realized productions, which makes it very unusual within uh, future generations exposure to Sondheim. Um, and yet it is so many people's, uh, I wouldn't say their favorite, but it is a beloved show in, in that sense. Why, why do we think that there's not been as many, um, I mean, there's so many, you know, standard songs that are in this show that people aren't aware are from this show, but they know them as Sondheim songs. Why do we think we're, we're theaters are afraid or resistant to take a crack at this 
still in a live, in a fully realized production? I don't know today what condition the materials are in, but when we did it in 1989, there were literally uh, missing chunks of material or the score and the script were not in alignment. There used to be an act two ballet at the end of act two that doesn't exist. So we actually contacted Sondheim and Dan Sticko from, uh, at that point from Chicago. Sondheim gave him permission to create, to write music for the end of act two so that we could still have, because the storytelling at the end of act two is pretty critical that as the file folders are being ripped that identify who are cookies. Um, we're supposed to see them free. And that was supposed to be musicalized. That did not exist and Sondheim did not have that music anymore. So I think because there were only 13 performances and, and then immediately recorded, it was almost like every, you know, everything got thrown into boxes. And then when people started digging it out, it was, it was a jigsaw puzzle. For, but that was 1989 and it may be very different now. Right. Anybody as to, else as to why we think we don't see this show as much as some of his other? Yeah, I'll speak to that. Sure. I, I, I had a, again, I'm referring to this wonderful group of people I've been visiting with Sondheim uh, as, a, as a topic on Sundays from uh, the Porchlight subscriber base. But um, we were talking about this show and we were talking about uh, Do I Hear a Waltz, which were both mm -hmm. primarily unsuccessful shows um, from the point of view of, of um, either, either critical reaction or the um, creator's evaluation of their own work or audience and dollars and cents. And this woman unmuted herself in her Zoom conversation and said, why aren't theaters doing shows like this? And, uh, you know, we had several Porchlight board members who were part of the conversation that explained, you know, there's a dollars and cents reason why you don't do a title that, you, that you're not sure you can sell tickets to. And she mentioned a, a show that had been produced in Chicago four times in the same season two years ago. And she said, I'm tired of seeing that show. I want to see these new shows. And I guess the, the conversation has to do around risk. And it also has to do around um, what part of our job as musical theater creators is meeting the audience in the marketplace. Like what part of our job is we're selling something, you know, and, and uh, so it was very interesting, but I have a feeling it has to do with risk is uh, for on the producing side, mostly. Mm -hmm. and, and to take that a step further, Sherry, I, I think the reason that, it, you know, it is risky is because Ultimately, I think the show doesn't, um, I think the show insults the audience. Um, there are a lot of quotes from Sondheim and Lawrence just about what smart asses they were at the time. You know, there's that famous moment at the end of Acts One where all of a sudden the actors on stage are in theater seats with programs pointing and laughing at the audience. And I, I think the show at the time, consciously or not, they were trying to prove to the audience how smart they were how clever they were, they, they've, they've said as much. And I think that's a real turnoff for audiences when they feel like so, uh, someone is being lecturing to them, someone is sort of smugly trying to tell them. 
which is only exacerbated by the fact that they try to take on too much, right? There are so many different ideas in the show. It's almost like whiplash sometimes watching it because all of us, you know, at one moment it's about conformity and non-conformity. At the next moment, it's about idealism versus cynicism. And then all of a sudden in simple, you get a whole bunch of other things just for a moment, gender roles, um, race issues. And it's just sort of, makes your head spin the amount of things that they tried to um, capture, which is what makes it fascinating to us, but difficult, I think, for an ordinary theater goer to sit through and, and comprehend. And one of the things that, that I was not aware of, and, and again, even historically, I I'd like to kind of go back and see how many other shows did this, but the fact that, Vicki, you mentioned it or alluded to it, it's in three acts which is, and I believe it was the last Broadway musical that was presented in three acts. And yeah. Correct. That, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I can't off the top of my head think of a, a lot of other Broadway musicals that were uh, initially structured in three acts. I think of operetta or things maybe quite some time ago that were presented in five acts. But as for a, a Broadway musical around 1964, that they felt that there was still this tradition to uphold. Um, and that it, it, from what I understand, at some point they attempted to reduce it down to two acts, but couldn't or, or didn't feel it was the best thing dramaturgically. Right. I think the experiment with the form is part of what they were being about as artists. So it's even just adding the ballet and it was going to be like something that no one had done before. And I think about this great uh, quote from Sondheim that what he learned from Leonard Bernstein was that uh, there's no problem in failing as long as you don't fall off the bottom rung of the ladder. And he said, Bernstein never did that. If he was going to push ahead and innovate, even if the piece wasn't successful, he did not, it's not because he didn't strive to do more. Mm -hmm. Do, um, one of the things that uh, I know that is some concern with it is that if, from the authors themselves, that they felt that it, it feels 60s in their mind, which I don't, I don't know that that's the truth. And I certainly didn't feel it any time that I've seen it recently. Um, do you feel that, you know, there are some shows that kind of, they might've been modern when they're doing it and even wonderful shows like South Pacific or, or Chorus Line, which are now period pieces. Um, does this feel inherently stuck in its era to you? I would say it, you know, it's absurdist qualities related a lot to 60s theater. So if you were looking at sort of innovative theater styles and, you know, tones, then you would associate it a lot with experimental theater in the 60s. But I don't find anything in it that puts it 60s, you know, in terms of this lens that we have now. Mm -hmm. That was and one I of the, the treats about your production, Vicki, is, is uh, going into this world that was created that was based on this sort of other world. This, it, it didn't bear any resemblance to the world we were in. It had this identity all to its own. And I think that helped keep the piece timely because it was so removed from any sort of attempt to suggest the original setting of it in the era. Sorry, Chris, I, I dived in there. <laughs> it's okay. I, I think also that 
from reading about their inspiration for the show, their inspiration was so was about topics like conformity and and the counterculture that were just such a part of the zeitgeist at the time that that might be why they feel that way. But fortunately, I don't think that any of those topics of conversation, while they might not be as in vogue, are certainly not still relevant. Um, because I, I felt the same way that, that Michael said, every time I've seen it um, or, or read it, um, it, that it, that's never stuck out at me either. Again, referring to this wonderful group of people from my son, my Sunday afternoons. But one of when we played, um, there won't be trumpets mm -hmm. in the class where we discussed this song. The universal response was how timely the search for a leader and the identity of the leader and what you will recognize when you see that person uh, was just came right up in discussion. That gives me chills hearing you. I mean, that is so true. Did you, did you tell them it was it was originally cut from the show? Yes. <laughs> and, hard, hard to believe. I know. Um, but I think and, I think Sondheim's work in the show is it, hard to say some of his best because he never wrote anything you know uh, less than than brilliant. But I think it's the packaging of the songs that makes the show hard to digest. I think any of the songs taken on their own um, are, are just like you said timeless you know but i think the um the monologue that replaced there won't be trumpets is brilliant i think and it's an extraordinary piece i am in love with reason and against any balderdash that holds up progress and those dripping waters of yours not only hold it up they flood and drown it my name is apple a double p l e apple a fruit well mentioned in the bible that bestseller of many miracles i cite the burning bush and the ten commandments just to name two or eleven, depending upon your arithmetic. <laughs> Mine makes him add up to zero because I am personally for the miracles of man, such as the wheel, the alphabet, and the bill of rights. Now, point two. If that exposed sewer system is truly a miracle, I freely admit that I will take a running jump into the origin of that water. What's more, if it can make any of those lazy pilgrims, yes, they are lazy, trying to get a new life quick, if it can make any of them permanently happy, I will take three running jumps and only come up twice. But I bet the same thing will happen that happens every time you try to sell people a myth. Those waterworks will turn out not to be a miracle. Now, point three. If those are my views, and they are, then why do I want my cookies to take those waters? I'll tell you why. Because my cookies are people, Jew. They are human beings and they deserve to be treated as such with the same rights as everyone else. So you can bloody well let them dip into that exposed sewer system. Now, if you don't, I'm not saying that I will go to the police because I am no fool, nor will I go to the mayoress because she is. But this is a free town and a free county and a free state and a free country and I am a free woman with a free mouth and if you say no to my cookies, I will open that mouth and talk. And I am telling you here and now that when I talk, and I will say, you know, in act two, that is some of the best scene writing in terms of non-musical, just, I mean, the whole scene leading up to Anyone Can Whistle and her entire monologue about trying to play the piano. I just think it is extraordinary 
writing. But you know, you've gone from act one where there are so many characters and so many, and then you go to act two, which is primarily two people for the entire act with, you know, Cora coming through with, is there a parade in town? In a, but the rest of it is just those two people. Where do we see that? It's so crazy and wonderful. Yeah. That, that really struck me when I was reviewing it for, for this conversation, that each of the three acts kind of has their own personality to them. And I think it's, again, what makes it hard for an audience because all, you think you're in one show and then the next act starts and that next act has a just completely different feel. Um, but I agree with you about the scene writing and I think it's the, it's the joy that we're watching two um, uh, masters of the art form experimenting. And so with, when you have those two people experimenting, even if it doesn't ultimately work, their experiment is still fascinating because of the sheer talent of the people that are doing the experiment. Absolutely. You know, that mention of that monologue and song is really interesting because uh, they shaped the, the uh, original monologue that was there to peak with the song. And it was Lee Remick who was performing it. And she was an extraordinary actress, but the song always felt like it didn't top. When you see, that's available on YouTube, when you see the Ravinia performance of Audra McDonald do the monologue and then top it with the song. I mean, I wanted to fall over in my chair when I was watching it. It just, it was so, especially that song, and again, right now, you know. was there won't be heroes, not there won't be But he didn't feel that, you know, heroes didn't have the consonant sound that he wanted. Mm -hmm. And trumpets is such an awesome, uh, it brings it all, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he said, he said, trumpets is a word that sounds like what it is, whereas hero just has a softer sound to it. Um, Those those original lyrics um, that Victoria mentioned are in, um, his book of, uh, of lyrics, if anyone hasn't read those. That's more for the audience than this panel, but <laughs> highly recommended viewers at home. And it, it certainly speaks to, I mean, when we talk about an incredible monologue in a musical and then go, well, who wrote that monologue? Who wrote this musical? Well, Arthur Lorenz, who did Gypsy? Who did West Side? Who, you know, and you're going, oh, well, <laughs> There's, there's your point there. You had an incredibly fine playwright. And yet at the same time, collaborators who needed to in a moment negotiate, and I think it's, you know, the record shows that part of the reason that Lee Remick was not able to succeed in the way that Audra McDonald was able to is just that Lee Remick was not the singer, nor frankly anybody of the leads were known at that point to be extraordinary singers. Angela Lansbury talks about 
in comparison to her work in that and then into MAME and then into Dear World, how she is horrified by what she was producing in Anyone Can Whistle and how she thought that her best and most consistent vocal performance was in Dear World, but that it took her that many, that long to become that accomplished. Listening now to the recordings of that show, I, I, I gasp with worry and concern about the way I was singing in those days because I was using a voice which was not trained to do what it was asked to do. I was singing out of my range and it sounds very thin, tinny at times to me, an, an embarrassment in, in some respects. Uh, although the drama behind the songs d did come through because if I couldn't sing it, I was going to act it. You look back at that original production as, and as they're working on it and those red flags that were going up of Arthur Lawrence directing the show that he wrote. But again, nobody having, you know, able to go, hey, Arthur, we're not going to let you do that, considering his position and muscle in the theater community at that time. Um, and that... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. The one person who tried to do that was the producer, Kermit Bloomgarten. And then, of course, they had a fist fight in Schubert Alley. <laughs> yes. Yes. Can you imagine, that, you know, going out there and, and, and walking by and going, that's Kermit Bloomgarten <laughs> and Arthur Lorenz beating the hell out of each other in the alley. I mean, the stories of old... Not Rock. that it's funny, but it is kind of a little funny. Right, right. <laughs> but I think that to some degree, this goes back to the accomplishment of Victoria's production and Chris's attack of the show as directors of going, when you have an outside director, assume this material and begin to approach it and rethink it anew and figure out what, how to elevate it, how to amplify it in that fashion. Um, Victoria, when you, when you came to it, what was your previous exposure to piece were you at was it just simply the album or was there anything no really just the album but you know once I started exploring it I I was kind of fixated on coming up with a visual metaphor or concept that would help the audience see conformity not only say people you know, but but and and I don't know how I you know I don't know how that really went into German expressionism, but which I absolutely love. But I saw the um, the German expressionist film Metropolis, but it had been put with a modern day electric score, mm -hmm. and literally, I just went click. experience as you've never heard it before. <laughs> 
it spoke to me so clearly about a world which was dependent on this conformity and then what happens if everybody breaks out? So what if the people who live in the town dress the same way as the cookies dress? You know, then it started to make a lot more sense to me for simple in terms of how did everybody get mixed up? I mean, I wanted to support the storytelling and I tried to find visual concept that would help clarify a multi-layered story that is, you know, every time one of my students works on it, I always say, okay, you're, you're about to dive into something where you're, go you're gonna go, where am I? And I say, just work your way through and then we'll talk about it. So clarifying that visually for an audience, I thought was really important to, in order for an audience to wanna stay with three acts. I know that that production of uh, Metropolis you speak of, I remember seeing it in, in the movies with the music of Eddie Mercury and yeah. uh, Joan Jett and all of those. Uh, but uh, it's 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 interesting the connection that you would to to see that foundation with it and be able to go ah that and the issue it sounds like that's what it was it was clarity that that uh, it had really gotten out of the hands of. Um, Arthur Lawrence, that he just was not in control of it uh, in, in any way, that it had so many different alleys they just kept pursuing down and that nobody on the team was really in a position to function to go, this isn't working. The, the results, it isn't, it isn't happening and being communicated to the audience. The rehearsals of Anyone Can Whistle, believe me, were wrought with... Uh with disagreement, upsets, uh, drama. Uh, everybody was going crazy, running up and down. And it, it, <laughs> and it wasn't my style at all, because I've always been a rather quiet person, you know, uh, just sort of getting on, getting on with my own business sort of thing. Well, I, I couldn't figure out what, what Arthur wanted. And uh, Herbert Ross, of course, was the uh, choreographer. And we had this wonderful ballet sequence in the middle of it, lovely ballet music. and. Uh, with one thing and another, I was really, I, I, I just thought, well, I just better mind my own business and get on with what I'm going to do. And uh, I had very specific uh, things to accomplish, and uh, I did my best to bring them off. I've always wondered if it would ever be possible to just lift out the two person, you know, start with act two. Now, is it possible to lift out enough storyline in act one and act three where it's a two person musical? Because they're so interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very interesting in that sense. And and you mentioned earlier, you know, in terms of the that time, it, it also occurs to me that other shows on Broadway in the '60s, experimental things like the Roar of the Grease Paint, the Smell of the Crowd, and Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. These pieces that were absurdist, and uh, that there was a there was a, a, a an interest in that from audiences on Broadway at the time to explore absurdism, and at a moment in the journey of the Broadway musical, that was so sort of comical George Abbott book scenes, awesome Frank Lesser songs, back to a wonderful you know book scene. Here comes a great Meredith Wilson song that they were ready to just bust out of the form. At the time. It makes me wonder if with Roar of the Grease Paint and Stop the World, you also had Anthony Newley, you know, 
writing a star tournament for himself. So it gave, you, you knew who you were following, whose story it was. Mm-hmm. And anyone can whistle is almost an embarrassment of riches. There's just so much going on that I think when you direct it, you have to figure out some way to tell the audience, follow this line, you know? And with that casting of that original group too, which, um, you know, Harry Gordino and, and I believe Lee Remick was also an actor's studio actor. I know yes. she did you know, films with Ilya Kazan. I'm not sure if she was a member of that group. She and was. then you're bringing in Angela Lansbury, who was essentially from Hollywood. I mean, having only done a, one play on Broadway, Taste of Honey, before this, uh, making her musical debut. I'm sorry, she was 23, I think, as well, when she did The Mayoress. Was she? I think she was a little wrong on that. I think think she did it after Manchurian Candidate. And that was when she, yeah. Maybe, you may be thinking of Gaslight or one of those earlier. Oh, maybe. Okay. Okay. And then she was nominated for the Academy Award and it was her first film. Right. I mean, an incredible, I mean, extraordinary talent. But, to, but again, and I think you're, you're, you're right on the nose, Sherry, that that's what they were thinking was her role in Manchurian Candidate. I could have my dates wrong on that too. <laughs> See, getting things in sequence is not oh, always but, my but strong even, suit. But even before that, things like um, State of the Union, the, that, that incredible Frank Capra movie that's based on the play, that she was playing those dominating, yeah. strong, female characters. Um, yeah. which, was, which was one of her um, issues during the show was that she felt like the character had no dimension, nothing to play. And she felt like she was just expected to recreate this kind of sullen um, persona that she had in the, in the films she had made. Um, and in Sondheim's book, he has a great story about her coming his uh, hotel room asking for another, uh, for some song that um, would, you know, help uh, give her character a little more dimension. And, um, and at the end pointed out that um, Lee had five songs and she only had four. And that's really where Parade in Town comes from, which is interesting because even though he's still using the same musical pastiche that he uses to define her character. It is the one moment we see her alone and somewhat vulnerable feeling passed by and left out. Um, but that was a big struggle for her in the, in the show was to wrestle with what exactly the character was.
according to Google, I'm completely wrong. She was 38. <laughs> she was how old? 38. 38. And I, and I think right around then she was playing Frank Sinatra's, or, you know, whose mother in Venturian Candidate. <laughs> and she uh, was three Charlie. years yeah, she was three years younger than he was or something. It's like, so Hollywood saw her a certain way, shall we say. <laughs> poor, poor Angela. I know. But you know what? If you watch, she, she did a great video interview also on YouTube. If you watch her talk about the Anyone Can Whistle process, Herb Green was the um, musical director and was trying to give them voice lessons and his method was to hold the larynx, like physically hold, and neither Lee nor Angela nor Harry were, were known as singers. And so, and so that, that was another complicating factor is the ability of these actors who had different identities. I auditioned for the role. Herb Green was the, was the uh, conductor and also had a very strong way of dealing with singers who were new to the game and uh, didn't quite know what they were doing, which was me and, and uh, uh, Harry Gardino and Lee uh, Remick. He'd grab you by the throat. He'd grab you by the throat and, yeah, you had to try and sing with him holding your throat. I mean, it was most extraordinary. And, and uh, well, to make a long story short, it, it really didn't encourage one at all to, to try anything. So. <laughs> We were all at the mercy of, of being grabbed by the throat. It didn't work. It, it was very bad for, for Lee, I think, truthfully, I really do, and also for me. I, I, I didn't sing for a year after Anyone Can Whistle Closed. And again, like, you know, would it have made a difference? Barbara Streisand was originally considered for the uh, Lee Remick role. Would it have made a difference if, I mean, we probably would have heard there won't be trumpets, but... <laughs> <laughs> but what an interesting event had she had she done that because she ended up instead doing funny girl as as opposed to this and you do wonder what would have happened to her career having just done miss marmelstein and then go into this which would have crashed and burned for her probably i don't know that she as you're saying that she could have saved this except for saving herself um it would what have been a very different fay, you know. It would have been a very different fay apple. Yeah, different what, idea. What, you know what could have and happened. The other point, career, you know, Chris. And the other point, Michael, is that the, that that was the other show, big show on Broadway. '64 was a year of Funny Girl and Fiddler and Hello Dolly, to name but several. So it's it's really fascinating for me thinking of an audience going in to watch Anyone Can Whistle, potentially having seen one of those. Other three shows you know somewhere around the same time how 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 exponentially more bizarre anyone can whistle must have felt in addition to its its actual structure yet when you compare it to one of those you know much more conventionally crowd-pleasing musicals mm -hmm. which again goes back to sherry's point about there's a certain there's a certain level of bravery and admiration that should be given to somebody like Kermit Bloomgarden. And, and as well as people that uh, put money into it, like Richard Rogers, um, before they did Do I Hear a Waltz, you know, it would be interesting to see if he would have put money in a Sondheim musical <laughs> after Do I Hear a Waltz. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's true, but I thought I had heard that Julie Stein also had put in money and some other 
writers of that level who were huge advocates for young Stephen Sondheim. And Sondheim did an um, advance against royalties with his publisher. So he, he still made a, a good penny from Gypsy and, mm-hmm. and West Side Story, but he, he had to go to an advance to invest in it himself. And they did 33 backers auditions. Yeah. And yeah. I say Arthur Lawrence was so nervous that Sondheim told him to stop coming to them because he was so nervous about them raising the money. And so Sondheim would just sit at the piano and play through the score with, with uh, no, no Arthur Lawrence to back him up. Mm-hmm. It also, for a while, my understanding is that it, it, it was the greatest vogue was to say you were, I was there. I saw one of those nine performances or the 15 previews beforehand to which they're like, there are more people saying they were there than there were actual potential seats available during those performances. Everybody wanted to say that they had seen this show. Same thing for Carrie the musical. That was the, everybody claims to be at the first run of Carrie. Mm-hmm. Which, and I think to some degree with a show like this, around the time when we got into the early 70s, and I think, I mean, you three may know the actual, which one came first, but the first sort of Sondheim celebration, which it may have been, was it the 1973 Carnegie Hall gathering that was or or, the, or the, there was a there was a, an event that had happened on the set of uh, little night music yeah uh, mm-hmm. the, the scrabble album which was a benefit on the set of the of little night music and and it's called the scrabble album because it has you know scrabble letters spelling sondheim on the lp jacket right which brings me to so the, the thing about his career is that he's had so many reviews that I think people have kind of backdoored themselves into a lot of Sondheim. They fell in love with a song that they heard in putting it together and then went back and found these pieces. And you're going, oh, that, oh that's how that fits into the show. Like but, with so little to be sure of and the score is one that lifted out. Everybody says don't. Um, and of course the title song.
Because you do really need a miracle. It's more complicated than just putting on a wig. I know. I can dance a tango. I can read Greek. Easy. I can slay a dragon any old week. Easy. What's hard is simple. What's natural comes hard. Maybe you could show me how to let go. Which makes me wonder that, as Chris is saying, that this is such a grab bag of styles of music within this one show. Were these songs that we know now as being Sondheim standards, when they, were, when they went into the ear the first time in 64, were they recognized by the audience then? As, or was it all just a mosh of... It's so amazing to read. I, for uh, one of the classes, I took the reviews of a uh, forum that were written at the time and then all the revival reviews and the reviews that were written at the time that the show debuted, which mostly didn't either mention Sondheim or mentioned him negatively. Then you go to the future reviews when he's an acknowledged genius and a person who made an immeasurable contribution to the theater. And now the score is prominent in the reviews and he is reviewed favorably. So mm -hmm. some of that has to do with our friend, the public's opinions, the critic's opinion, all of that. And do you think it's possible maybe that we've caught up to him finally? Totally. But you know, they said the same thing about Mahler. At the time that Mahler was, was not Michael Mahler, our, <laughs> <laughs> our Chicago oh, composer. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Gustav Mahler, but they said the same thing is people would go to the concert hall and they couldn't hear the music. They didn't get it because they weren't accustomed to listening to music that, that followed these. It's the same thing that uh, the, Vicky was talking about, the way the story goes like this and slaloms and, and the music is doing the same thing. It, it's, um, there's the style of the sort of brash a uh, show busy style of Cora. And then there's the more heartfelt mm -hmm. sound of the score with, with some of the two person moments, you know? Two things though, and this is a slightly um, not to your question, Michael, but if we're talking about the music and what he did, we do see him experiment with two things that he continued to do throughout his career here for the first time. Uh, one of which is, is developing developing this sense of 
pastiche to signify something about the character. We see him do that with all of um, the mayoress's numbers in that sort of K. Thompson nightclub way. And then I think we see it obviously in Follies, so many different styles of pastiche communicating about the characters and um, Merrily as well. And the other thing he does here that we don't see from him really again until he starts working with James Lapine is, is his experimentation and development of the musical scene. If you look at Simple at the end of Act One and how intricately timed the dialogue and the, and the, and the sung lyrics are, it's really this incredible scene, not, not a song, but a, a musical scene that really sort of um, foreshadows the kind of writing he'd end up doing with James Lapine uh, you know, makes me think of Sunday and Into the Woods in particular. So for me, it's really sad to see him start playing around with those kind of ideas in this score. And that may be part of the reason that looking backwards, as you say, Michael, makes more sense because now we're very accustomed to him or other people doing similar things that may not have been the case at the time. Hello, 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 hello. Most of your money goes to the government in taxes. And what does the government do with most of your money? Makes bombs. Reverse! Good! Hello! Hello! But you said that to make a product and not to use it is crazy. Isn't that what you said, Controller Boo? And doesn't that make you crazy for letting them waste your money, treasurer's shoe? Reverse! But perhaps the government is making bombs because it intends to use the product. Which means everyone will be killed. Good. Including you, shoot. Oh, together now, which means you are spending most of your money to have yourself killed. Which means, my dear doctor, controller, mayor, shoot, you are the best of all. directed as many Sondheim musicals as you have. And, and I think this particular piece came a little bit earlier in your career, as opposed to, you know, you've almost directed the entire canon. What is, what is, um, 
what is universal about Sondheim's musicals when you are approaching them as a director, receiving the material? What, is, what are the types of things that you go, okay, this is Sondheim, I have to put on, I can. <laughs> See, that's so interesting because for me, this is the thing that, um, for me with Sondheim, it's never been about the intellectual. I, I put on his music and I have very strong emotional reactions. And that's how, that's how I direct his musicals. I just, you know, so there's so much criticism, you know, early on when things were reviewed about, oh, he's, it's all intellectual. It's all, and I just never interpreted, I never felt that with his work. So it just always spoke to me really personally. And it was perhaps a little different, you know, that, but that's just how I'm wired. Um, there's no question that his lyrics are brilliant, but I find his music incredibly emotional. I think it's so interesting that how hard he pushes back against the song Anyone Can Whistle being his authentic self. Because if there was ever a more naked, vulnerable song than that, I don't know what it is. Whistle at a dragon, down it'll fall easy. Whistle at a hero, trumpets and all easy. That is, that is a, a point that's been interesting in these conversations that different um, people that, that I've been connecting with about different Sondheim shows have different feelings about what's the show that, or the song that most reveals him. Um, some feel it's bounce in terms of his point of view about romance, that, that romance has not been really a part of his uh, long life. There are components um, within that show too, where it's felt he speaks about his parents. But this, this moment, and, and, and again, I think it happened at a benefit where he was asked to sing Anyone Can Whistle, as opposed to any other song that he wrote, and somehow it latched on as going, aha, that's the song that is re most revealing, which is the audience's projection of that. I had a really profound experience rehearsing that scene and that song with Larry Yando, young Larry Yando and Colette Hawley, where in rehearsal one evening, um, they are both such fearless, risk-taking actors. The, the best thing I could do was stay out of the way and let it happen. And they were both on this bed for this song and you know, he takes off her wig. They're making love and then he takes off her wig and she freezes. She can't be intimate with another human being unless she's wearing this wig. 
And he says, well, I, I'm not interested in making love to somebody who is in a wig. And Colette, in this one rehearsal, without anybody, anybody having any warning, pulled off her shirt and her bra and was completely bare chested in this rehearsal room at Truman College. I mean, it, it still gets me when I think of it. I've never seen such, she wanted that sense of the same vulnerability that they experienced having, you know, her wig pulled off. And it was, I don't know, it was breathtaking. You wanted to run up and throw a coat around her, but it was, it was really, I mean, I didn't use that that far in the show, but boy, did that teach me something about the depth of that song and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which also further, whether they accomplished it or achieved what they were having in their head and to get it on stage in 64, it's there and it reminds us these people who had been working in, as Sherry talks about, you know, commercial Broadway, were determined to break down barriers and to use this art form for something so much more than anybody had up to that point, certainly on the, on the shoulders of shows like Showboat or, or Carousel or Cabaret before the, well, Cabaret was, was still yet to come, but certainly other things, you know, were bound and determined to really do something. And that whatever they put on paper still was able to have the same uh, potential many, many years still in the future when you directed it and still yet to come, you know. The uh, Chris points out a, a, a point about pastiche that is that is used throughout, and and, and I saw Sondheim uh, particularly uses that as a tool. Um, Sherry, you might want you know speak to to the the power of this particular thing, and maybe talk us a little bit about through Sondheim's really. Of course, it's all over Follies, but he has a history of this. You know, he does. He's not afraid to to, I wouldn't say borrow, but pay tribute. You know. I, yeah, and I think that that change, I, I can't remember, I believe it's in his book where he mentioned he doesn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> he wanted to stop doing it. To use something, I can't remember which show it was, I think it may well have been Cora and Anyone Can Whistle, but uh, the idea of using a musical theater uh, a device in the score to signify something, that somehow that there wasn't a mesh with the audience in doing that. Uh, the audience didn't understand what he was doing or something. Was it, but was it Pacific Overtures? Might have I can only say that because I've been reading up on a lot of that lately. And I'm wondering if it's on Hello. Because might that well have been. That might have been it where he said, okay, enough, enough of this. Yeah, <laughs> it's all sometimes scrambling going on in here. I'm uh, sure for all of us. Yeah. But this tells you something about this artist. It's like, look at the different ways we've talked about his work. And I'm not sure, but bless the hearts of all the people that, I won't name any names, but all the people that are the Broadway composers that preceded him and have followed, I don't know that we would be talking about the work in the same way as we are and this, this artist. And don't you hope that there's going to be at least one more? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
one of the one of the Sondheim class participants said uh, in the last class, "Do you think he'll write another song?" And it touched me so deeply because uh, white-haired, you know, person saying this, and also just that it, that even if it were a song, you know, and he is working on a piece with David Ives, from what I understand. So that will be interesting, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> well, a part of where he landed in the trajectory of that sort of golden age of Broadway moving into the modern age. And he's still here with us in the age of Lin-Manuel Miranda and people like that. And there may still be a Sondheim show yet to come, but he goes back to the era of Carousel, sitting there and, and sobbing, watching the opening night performance. So he's also been a conduit and a messenger that was able to draw back to Rudolph Brimmel and things like that for, for Follies. And, and there's just, you know, the entire everything, it's all in him as a living person who has the entire history of, of Broadway and the, and the evolution of musicals within yeah. it. The first time I saw um, Tick, Tick, Boom off Broadway and didn't know it at all, and I'm sitting there, right there at the end, he checks his, you know, he hears his phone machine, and it's Sondheim, you know, leaving him a message to call him. I, another moment, completely lost it, had no idea that was coming, and I thought, oh, there's another legacy. How Sondheim, you know, reached to Jonathan Larson. Mm -hmm. And how that is immortalized in Tick, Tick, Boom is so incredible. Mm -hmm. And here again, you have the dialogue between moving the form forward, continuing to experiment, mentoring others as Sondheim was mentored by Oscar Hammerstein, and then the commercial theater. And especially, you know, who knows what's next with the commercial theater, but the commercial theater we've been in recently, which is you have somebody like Lin-Manuel Miranda who can actually do both who can meet the commercial audience and innovate. But a lot of times that doesn't happen because of how much it costs, mm -hmm. you know, right. unfortunately. Well, the, the other woman who was the, the co-producer on Anyone Can Whistle, just, you know, speaking of cost, said that she thinks, and, and I am apologizing, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but she wrote, uh, or when interviewed said that she felt like the show Anyone Can Whistle was under budgeted and they and didn't have the time to develop. And, and she credits the fact that the show kind of arrived half-baked and what might have been able to accomplish if they had had a little more time. And, you know, to your point, Sherry, in the commercial theater, time is money, um, you know, which is, I think, true for most industries, but especially in the theater. And interesting to note how even that sort of a commercial consideration might have impacted the final artistic product that we live with and cherish today. You know, if they'd had another week, what might have happened? Um, we'll never know. Yeah. Another week, Barbara Streisand, probably somebody for Arthur Lawrence to collaborate with on direction or another director, yeah. and who knows? <laughs> it, it still may happen, who knows? Somebody, somebody may un unlock this in, entire show. And, uh, and I think of Lin-Manuel Miranda, when you, when, you, when you talk about that, and I, when you go back to the, that era in the mid-70s, once Sondheim had settled in 
and had the three big whammo with, you know, with company, with night music, with, um, you know, Follies obviously was, you know, artistically respected and, and, you know, there was no going back while, while it didn't make any money. But yet there was this um, infection of writers trying to write like Sondheim or responding to what he was and going, how do we wrestle with him? You know, he's got one hand tied behind his back and he's pummeling. I mean, you know, he's, he, can, he can whip us every which way. There was such a, a, a neurosis on Broadway dealing with him to some degree because you just had this genius in the room and everybody else was really great. But then you had Shakespeare who also was at the table. And I think of somebody like Lin-Manuel Miranda who has that distance of going, you know, the, 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 the torch to some degree is being passed. It's not about me being in competition with him. I really can find my own voice and there's nothing to confuse those two genius writers. You know, it's just the new genius, just as when Oscar Hammerstein left the field, Sondheim was there to take it to the next level too. Well, he said actually that um, he, he views Anyone Can Whistle as his attempt to do what he saw Hammerstein attempt to do in Allegro. He draws a clear line from Allegro to what they tried to do on Anyone Can Whistle um, and similarly was not a success. Right. And there was a, a comment that Hammerstein made to, was it to Arthur Lawrence, who said Stevie needs to have a flop? Yep. I think it was mm-hmm. Bert, Bert Shevelov, maybe he said that too, but yeah. Somebody I think, like that where, yeah. you know, he, he's not going to be- He won't be a member of the Broadway community until he's had a, a flop. Until yeah. he had a flop. And he, and he got a flop. He Two in a row. Well, well, Do I Hear a Waltz was, it, it sold some tickets, but it, I think he yeah. regretted it. And I don't know how much he really takes too much- ownership over that particular piece, the success or the failure of it, you know, in, in that sense. But yeah, this was certainly the type of thing that, that happens. And then he goes silent for the rest of the, the rest of the decade, basically, you know, so this must have hurt him a great deal or really shaken him to the degree that he wasn't, maybe number one, that he wasn't producing, but again, to the question of commercial theater that maybe they're going, you know what, Ethel Merman was right. We don't, he doesn't, we don't need him writing music. He didn't get a Tony nomination for Forum and this was a mess. So maybe nobody was calling. You never know. You never know. know. He did, he did do a lot of other interesting things. Like he, you know, Evening Primrose was, Mm -hmm. I think before this, but you know, the, he wrote a detective film, The Last of Sheila, or a murder mystery mm-hmm. with Anthony Perkins and The Frogs at Yale, which was another, you know, challenging <laughs> proposition. So there was- a- but We see this a lot with many composers, Jerry Herman as well, where, you know, they, they take some lumps and then they just go quiet for a quite some time and then come roaring back with La Cage à Folle come roaring back with company, you know, and they just need to kind of hunker down and, and, and see, you know, I stuck my head out of the hole a little bit too much. I'm gonna go back down. Oh, it's just the gestation because, you know, he had three hits in five years at the very beginning of his career. And just to have three Broadway shows in five years, the amount of work, of course, they, things are done a little bit differently now in terms of development. But, you know, it, Meredith Wilson, white writing again as one person with then later book help, seven years 
to get to Broadway with the music man. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the common wisdom that, you know, they say to people is it takes seven years to get from your first inkling of the idea to a Broadway production. But right. Right. I mean, to think of the volume of work. Wow. And, and, and hopefully he wasn't feeling at this time to go, well, what were the hits? The hits were the shows that I did with, Leonard Bernstein and George Abbott and Julie Stein and maybe I need collaborators of you know I, maybe I can't write the music and the lyrics on my own. But I oh, hope he never felt that way. <laughs> I hope that's all. Wrong. I don't want him to feel that way ever. Thanks for everything we did. Everything that's past. Everything that's over. ask you this as, as, as a wrap up. Um, if someone, you, you, had, you had heard someone was going to see a production of Anyone Can Whistle, what's your response to them? You're going to go see Anyone Can Whistle. Oh, that show. You're going to- I would probably drown them in the trivia that I've been drowning us all in. <laughs> 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 and then Angela Lansbury. Uh-huh. I'd be excited for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd, I'd probably say, where are you seeing it and can I go along? Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. what I would say to prepare them for it. I would say maybe, oh, yeah, that's the show that has these four songs and name the four that they might know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say they were lucky to see it. True. I'd say enjoy would- the ride. Just mm-hmm. take the ride and experience it in the moment. You you took the words out of my mouth, uh, Victoria. I was just going to say, enjoy the ride and don't try and make too much sense of it or you'll, you'll miss something along the way. Be in the moment wherever they are and enjoy that. And later you'll be able to piece it together. But, you know, it, when you're in the theater, just, just have fun. Because I think they wanted, I think they wanted to be fun and whimsical. They're, they're saying things, but in a very clever way that I think they mean to not be taken too seriously. Mm -hmm. That's as good a preparation, I think, as anything for this roller coaster of a show. Thank you, everybody, for joining me. What a great conversation. Now I want to go back and listen to it all over again, listen to their album all over again. 
But thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.